The day is done, and the darkness falls from the wings of night, as a feather is wafted downward from an eagle in his flight. I see the lights of the village gleam through the rain and the mist, and a feeling of sadness comes o'er me that my soul cannot resist. A feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain, and resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. Come, read to me some poem, some simple and heartfelt lay that shall soothe this restless feeling and banish the thoughts of day. Not from the grand old masters, not from the bards sublime, whose distant footsteps echo through the corridors of time. For like strains of martial music, their mighty thoughts suggest life's endless toil and endeavor. And tonight, I long for rest. Well, Marge was one of a kind. She had been my swimming coach as a child, and she became a coach to two of us, two former swimmers, uh, through palliative care. This is Nursing Student Narratives, and I'm Claire Shaysgreen, the host of this podcast. A few months ago, we sat down in our studio with Alana Campbell. For many years, Alana worked at the CBC as a reporter, documentary maker, and the host of The World at Six. Now, Alana makes audio art. More specifically, she makes what are called sound portraits, which are audio recordings of one's personal memoir. Now you know where the incredible, soothing voice comes from. So Alana came to tell us the story of caring for her swim coach as she was dying of cancer. And as soon as Alana sat down, she pulled out a photograph of Marge and said something along the lines of, I'm going to put this here to remind us what this whole thing is about. So what is it about? Well, it's a beautiful story of an extraordinary woman that I have listened to over and over and over again. But Marge's story is also a manifestation of a real problem that exists. We're told regularly the baby boomers are getting older, they're going to need more care, but as it stands, we simply don't have the resources to provide care for everyone who needs it. And as a result, there are a number of people across this country who are being thrown into the role of caregiver, but without pay and without recognition. So Marge's story sent us on a search for other stories about informal caregivers. But those stories are going to make up our next episode. We want to tell you this story first. She was pretty much alone. She was 93 when she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And so she had been married, but her husband had died in 1990. All of her contemporaries had died. She was great at making young friends. She had a wide variety of people around her. But as far as something as intimate as dying went, she didn't have anyone really she could call on. She had one cousin who was in his 80s 
so she felt she could turn to him for practical advice or financial advice, but certainly no medical care or tenderness in those ways. And she was an extremely feisty, independent woman. She lived in a small apartment in Rosedale. She had lived there for almost 60 years. She was one of the first residents, and she was determined she would die there. And the story of her diagnosis, uh, she called my friend Elizabeth, the other swimmer, and said, I think I need someone to take me to the hospital. Took her to emergency at Sunnybrook, and 24 hours later, we were both with her to hear the news that she had stage 4 colon cancer. And the two young doctors, I mean, they seemed like babies to her, of course. They were probably in their 30s. They were so kind. They told her together. They treated her so gently. And she just stood up, you know, and said, well, that's great. That's that's perfect. And they both looked so shocked. And she said, uh, you know, all of my friends are gone. And I knew that I was going to be taking my leave somehow. And this will be fine. And they said, well, we'll book an MRI for you. And she said, oh, don't be ridiculous. I do not want to spend any of the taxpayers' money. I, you know, I am an almost 94-year-old woman, and I'm on my way. And they were quite taken aback by that. One said that he had a grandfather who had survived stage 4 colon cancer for three years and that he was swimming every day, and perhaps she'd like to talk to him, and she just, you know, waved that off. And then they left to go get a nurse in the hospital to give her some sort of connecting care to CCAC and find out what we could do to help her. And uh, as soon as they left the room, she turned to us, and we thought she'd burst into tears. And she said, you know, I'm going to ask them if they're married. I think one would be great for one of your younger daughters, and one would be great for the older daughter. And so she, she barely blinked. We got home, we went back to our house, my house, and I made her egg salad sandwiches, her favorite. And she said, you know, I don't want you lambs to worry about me. I plan to just slip away. And we looked at each other and thought, if only. She had worked at Sunnybrook Hospital as a volunteer for 40 years. And so she said, if I really do have to go anywhere, I will only go to Sunnybrook Palliative Care. She'd worked in the veterans wing, so she actually would have gone to her familiar space. But at the end of the day, she wanted to stay at home. So that fell to us. But uh, she had, you know, she'd outlived her contemporaries and she had outlived her savings. There really was nothing to turn to, not much anyway. And so we had to be very conscious of that. And because of her personality and her independence and her pride and the fact that she had once been our coach, uh, she was not going to accept any financial help from us. She made it easy because she has an open face, clear blue eyes, uh, bright as they come, far brighter than both Elizabeth and I combined. Uh, Difficult at times, drove away a number of personal care (laughs) workers and, you know, did not suffer fools gladly. Uh, But for us and anyone who took the time to get to know her a little bit, uh, she was always warm and optimistic when you'd walk in. Elizabeth and I got to the point where we'd alternate days and when I'd arrive at 8.30 and put a pot of coffee on for her, you know, she'd be sitting in her chair and, hi, lamb. Oh, I'm so lucky. It's such a wonderful day. I'm so glad you're here. 
And, you know, I'd turn my back and I'd be in this little kitchen of hers and I'd think she feels lucky. You know, she's dying of cancer. She is 80 or 90 pounds now. And yet it was her attitude that gave us, uh, you know, the strength and, and the inspiration. It really was not a difficult thing for us. It was just a complicated thing. The hardest part for Marge, I think, was as she got a little weaker, we, of course, had to get more strangers in her life. And I hadn't really appreciated how difficult it is, even for a friendly, kind person like Marge, to open your door over and over and over and over again to a new face and a new style of care and a different personality. And she was great most of the time. As I said earlier, she did drive a few away. I think sometimes the people that send you great help forget to appreciate how hard it can be to have so many different caregivers and so many different personalities to marry with one strong lady in her 90s. In the circle of care, there's always the surprise participant or the surprise character in the, in the play, and that was Michael. He lived down the hall. He is a handsome, tall, burly, rough around the edges. I hope he never hears this. Uh, <laughs> A neighbor who is in his, we think, late 50s, and he and Marge had struck up a relationship about three years before her diagnosis, just neighborly relationship, but they had become much more. They were such great soulmates and friends. And like my mother before her in care, nothing made Marge happier than when Michael walked in. All he had to do was walk in and smile at her. You know, she'd always loved men. She'd always loved tall, good-looking men. She'd always loved tall, good-looking, bright men uh, with a sense of humor. And he had it all. And he came. He brought dinner almost every night to her. He came and kissed her goodnight, helped her into bed. You know, he was a, a huge part of her care and her life. And I said, is she, is she, you know, is she like your mother? What kind of relationship do you two have? And he said, no, no, she's like my daughter. I'm taking care of her. And he said, I have to, uh, what was his, he said it was, it was for the, you know, some of, some of the bad behavior in his life before. This was, he was trying to earn some good karma in the life ahead. And he was just a prince and a real gift to Elizabeth and me because he could do things for her we couldn't. He could make her laugh in a different way. And again, speaking to the, the limits of CCAC and support services like that. For anyone who doesn't know what CCAC stands for, it's Community Care Access Centers. There are local agencies that facilitate care, especially for people living at home. I think at the end we qualified for six, no, 56 hours a week. We were given 56 hours a week, which I think is the maximum. Uh, mostly personal support work, a little bit of nursing. And, uh, you know, if you do the math, I can't do it without a pen and paper, but, uh, you know, 24 times 7 is a lot more than 56 hours, so there were a lot of gaps to fill. And just knowing he was down the hall made a tremendous difference. So near the end, we had Michael on call basically every night, though he sometimes worked nights, and then we had to supplement uh, the CCAC hours with private nursing care and a close family friend who was a nurse's aide who was invaluable. When push came to shove, we finally had a big meeting with um, our CCAC care coordinator, who was a gem, uh, Emily. Uh, we had the palliative care doctor come. 
That palliative care doctor, by the way, sort of changed every couple of weeks, which was hard on the patient. But anyway, they were all great, but we did have a bit of a revolving door there. And uh, then I guess Elizabeth and myself and Marge. And it was getting down to the point where we really had to, we were trying to convince her to at least consider going to Sunnybrook for palliative care. Uh, the big question mark was, and this was new to me, she could only qualify, she could only go in for three months. So if she lived longer than three months, she'd be coming home again. And we had no facility, we had no ability, you know, to do that because once she left that apartment, she wouldn't be able to get back in. And it was at a point where she couldn't bathe herself, she couldn't be left alone, she couldn't walk without a walker. She really had to have 24-7 care. So we had that meeting with the palliative care doctor, uh, CCAC coordinator, Elizabeth and myself and Marge sitting in the middle looking very bad tempered. And the palliative care doctor finally took her hand very respectfully. They, everyone loved Marge that met her. They were all amazed by her. Took her hand and said, I want you to go into a palliative care unit now because you'll be safe there. And she sat up in her chair and she said, safe. Where where did you go to school? Do you not understand grammar and the English language? And he, you know, he started to blush, to tell you the truth, and fabulous guy. And he said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I will not be safe, young man, anywhere. I might be safer at Sunnybrook, but I will be the one to decide whether it's time. And so they took their leave, and Elizabeth and I rolled our eyes, and I said, well, what did you think of all of that? And she said, well, you know, Lamb, if the call comes this week, because we were afraid it was going to come, and if we turned it down, she might go down the list. If it comes this week, I'll go. And Elizabeth looked up, what did she just say? And I said, what did you say, Marge? And she said, I'm going to go. If the call comes this week, I'll go. And I said, what's changed your mind? And she said, you know, I can't stand the pressure of all these different people coming in to stare at me. And that's how she felt. And she had asked, not very nicely, one of the best personal support workers who had loved her and who she was very fond of. She had said to her the other day, you have to leave, you keep staring at me, or go sit over there with this imperious pointed finger. Go sit over there in the kitchen with your back turned to me. Then you'll hear me if I fall, but I don't want you looking at me anymore. And that night... She stood up, that very wonderful personal care worker was there taking care of her. You know, the shift was changing. The phone, came, the phone call came up from the lobby. Her, uh, the next person said, I'm here. And this wonderful woman turned her back and walked away to get her coat. And Marge stood up, she wasn't supposed to do that without someone in the room, stood up, started to walk with her walker, fell and the medical people that came in that night said that she'd either broken her hip or her femur. So she was put on the couch and we had to fight for it, but we convinced um, everyone that the palliative care doctor should come visit her rather than us take her to the hospital, which they did hours and hours later, but she was on some fairly heavy painkillers at that point. And she knew she was leaving. It was on her schedule and 24 hours later, she died. And the next morning, Sunnybrook called us to say there was a palliative care bed.
we had a, an RN there that night who knew clearly she had slipped away. But we, of course, had to call the palliative care unit, um, which was run through Mount Sinai Hospital. And I didn't. It took me weeks to understand it's a it's a virtual palliative care unit. I thought there were beds and you know, a big room or a ward at Mount Sinai Hospital, but clearly it was virtual. So we got yet another doctor on the phone, and he said, "Well, uh, it's eight o'clock. I'm assuming you can wait till the morning." And I said, well, no, we can't wait till the morning. It's been a pretty long 24 hours, and we'd really appreciate it if you'd come now. And he said, well, I'm up by Lawrence and Bathurst. And I said, well, you know, we're down on Jarvis Street. It's not very long a drive. Could you please come? And by the time he got there, I must say, he was incredibly uh, gentle with Marge, spoke as if she was still alive, asked her for permission if he could see if he could hear her heart, was incredibly dignified in his approach, and left. The night Marge was dying, it was clear to Elizabeth and I that she was going to take her leave that night. We went down to Michael's apartment and said, you know, we've said goodnight to her and you should probably come in the next couple of hours and have some quiet time with her, which he did. And then after she died, he said, you know, she doesn't want a funeral. And we said, no, but we'll have something graveside, something. The three of us have to stand there. We'd become family to each other. And he said, okay, and I'd like to read something. So wind ahead to the funeral, and he strode across Mount Pleasant. He, he always was kind of in jeans and a T-shirt, and now he was wearing a cashmere jacket and all gussied up, and you just knew who, who he was doing that for. Anyway, he came towards me, and I said, so we're going to start, and... I have a little something to say, and then do you want to read whatever it is you're going to read? And he said, oh, I, I haven't got anything to read. He was playing me. And uh, I said, well, okay, that's fine. I, I'm glad I asked. And he said, well, look up at me, though. I might, I have something to say. I probably will have something to say. And so I looked up at the appropriate moment, and he strode forward. And he, people there said he reminded them of Richard Burton in his command of the stage, and he recited, Day is done, and it is a very moving, long poem, probably 12 stanzas, and he did it without a catch in his throat, certainly lots of emotion in his voice, and afterwards at our house, I said, why did you choose that, and when did you learn that? He works in um, the film industry. And I said, who taught you that? And he said, oh, nothing to do with work. Marge told me if I memorized poetry, I'd feel stronger, and I wouldn't worry about daily things. And that was the first thing I learned with her. So imagine this 50-something-year-old guy down the hall coming to have a drink at night with Marge, and they would recite poetry. And she was a tough judge. I mean, that's why it was so good. I remember being upside down in a pool and being told, you do that figure 10 more times till you get it right. You had to really nail something to impress her. So he had worked hard, and uh, it was very dramatic, and it was so fitting. Read from some humbler poet whose songs gushed from his heart as showers from the clouds of summer or tears from the eyelids start. 
who through long days of labor and nights devoid of ease still heard in his soul the music of wonderful melodies. Such songs have power to quiet the restless pulse of care and come like the benediction that follows after prayer. Then read from some treasured volume the poem of thy choice and lend to the rhyme of the poet the beauty of thy voice. And the night shall be filled with music and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents like the Arabs and as silently steal away. what it taught me more than ever is that that time, whatever time it is, you know when you're in it, it's temporary, and there's a part of you that wants for the person you're caring for, for it to go quickly. But when it ends, death is so final, and you regret not having more fun with those people, time to just relax. It can't all be about the caregiving, the the formal caregiving. And while giving her a shower taught me a new element of tenderness, it also reminded me that a lot of caring for someone you love is letting them be the real person they are and not see them as the patient. But if there was one thing that was hard on us as caregivers was, you know, we were her friends and we hated losing that part. You know, only we could do that. So that's something that the system has to address because I think the more capable you are as a family or as a caregiver, that's, you know, the more you're asked to do. And really and truly, some of the nurses that came were so great, but we didn't really ever get to the top of the list. Because Marge was bright and articulate and she could express herself so quickly, because she had these two women there that were obviously very fond of her, nurses did say over and over again to us, you know, this is great, Alana, Elizabeth, you can change these bandages. Let me show you these weepy legs of hers. It's no big deal. You can do this. Or to Marge, I'd love to stay and chat, but I'm going now to someone who suffers from dementia. You know, I'd much rather sit and talk with you, but I have, in essence, a more needy patient. And it was just, that was the nature of the beast. Um, But that seemed unfair to us for her sake. And that, I think, just speaks to the fact that there are too many people in the system needing help. And of course, those caregivers who came through the door had to schedule their days, and we were very much a 10-minute visit when really she deserved longer, you know. The big thing I wish for is that with this increasing group of all of us getting older. I'm only a couple of decades behind her. Uh, I just hope the system can catch up because I felt we had great support, but there were lots of gaps and we were able to fill them, but not, not everyone has that luxury. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Let us know what you think by getting in touch on our Facebook page, Twitter, or website, www.nursingstudentnarratives.com. This episode was produced by Adam Four, Amanda Sissons, Claire Shaysgreen, Hilary Smith, Marty Butler, and Melissa Mock. Music by Noah Reed. The poem, Day is Done, was read by Ian Lake. Check him out at the Stratford Festival this summer when he stars as Macbeth. 
and a special thanks to Girth Radio, as always. Next time on Nursing Student Narratives, Caregiving Part 2. Just after her diagnosis, we had her for a family dinner at our house that she knew and loved my husband and kids, and we were all there. And she went to blow out the candles on her birthday cake, turning 94, and our son said, oh, Marge, what are you going to wish for? And she said, just a minute. And she blew out the candles, and she said, I'm going to get that wish. And we said, what was it? And she said, I wished I wouldn't be here a year from now. And we all, I mean, the kids all, oh, don't say that. But you know, when she died, I thought, she got her wish.